the end of this chapter, I feel greatly blessed. Uh, I get to exposit this text before you, and really, when it comes to the subject of Christian unity, this really is a mountain peak passage. I want us to consider the fruits of Christian unity. So John 17, beginning there at verse 20, these are the words of God. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect and one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. John 17 is commonly known as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's already been remarked in this conference that this truly is the Lord's prayer. What we find in Matthew is uh, the model prayer, but this truly is the Lord's prayer. Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples where he has instituted the Lord's Supper, and he has delivered teachings unto them to comfort them and prepare them for what was to come. In chapter 18, Jesus would be arrested. He would be betrayed by his friend. He would be arrested, tried by night, and sentenced to die. What we have in John 17 are Jesus' last words with his disciples before his crucifixion. And he concludes his discourse with a time of intense and fervent intercessory prayer. The imminency of his crucifixion, it would be very understandable if Christ here in this chapter would pray for himself. If you knew that after this conference you would be arrested and tried and sentenced to crucifixion, It'd be very reasonable for you to pray for yourself. Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Lord, give me the strength to withdure and and withstand the trial that I will soon undergo. But in John 17, we don't find Jesus primarily praying for himself. Rather, he's praying for his people. Moments before his betrayal into the hands of sinners, our Lord was led by a compassion for his own. He prays first for his disciples that were there with him on earth. It's primarily a prayer of keeping. He prays that they would be preserved in the world, not taken out of the world. 
but kept in the world, preserved by grace through the power of God's name. But in verse 20, he broadens the scope of this prayer. There's a transition in verse 20. And he no longer only prays for the eleven, but he begins to pray for the totality of the redeemed throughout all the ages. Notice in verse 20 he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature. And here he is praying for those who would come to saving faith as a result of the gospel permeating the earth as his people carried out the great commission in every age. To make this very personal. If you are here this morning and you are saved by grace through faith in Christ, Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you. It's a glorious truth. Our Messiah, on the night before his crucifixion, is praying for you. He's praying for us. And not some indiscriminate prayer that a finite mind would pray, but praying a prayer that only the Son of God, the omniscient, all-knowing, eternal Son of God could pray, praying for His own by name. It's a prayer of specificity, because He also will say in this prayer, I don't pray for everybody. I don't pray for the world. There's a bunch of people I'm not praying for. I'm praying for my people that will come to me through the word of my disciples praying for you. He knows your name. He knows who you are. He's praying for you. His chief petition, our unity. You think our Lord knew something about us? You think Jesus knew that the greatest challenges would come, not from unbelievers outside of the church, but from our own sinful pride within that breeds division and contention. He doesn't pray for us that we would be able to withstand the attacks of unbelievers that would come upon the church. Though that is a reality. He doesn't pray that we would be able to survive the onslaught of persecution, though that is a present danger. His chief prayer in these, in these verses is that we would be united even as he and the Father are united. Unity is not a subsidiary aspect of the Christian faith. This conference hits at the main thesis of what the gospel produces in the lives of those who believe it. Unity. Jesus' brother, James, in his epistle, says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Why are Christians fighting all the time? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? From your own lusts that war in your members? So Jesus prays that by divine grace, God would overcome our pride and overcome our selfishness. Overcome our desire for the preeminency 
that he would unify us in his name. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is praying for us. Our desire is that we would be an answer to his prayer. When we are united together, we are not only a product of what Christ has done for us, but we're an answer to the prayer that Christ prayed for us. How are we going to do that? How are we going to achieve this unity? And that's what I really want to focus in on in this conference. What are the, the, the practical fruits of Christian unity? What does it look like when we're united? How are we going to attain this unity? Well, thankfully, we don't have to rely on our own pragmatic schemes to achieve this unity. Firstly, we have the Word of God. The Word of God defines the basis and the parameters for our unity. When we examine this petition, we are able to identify specific aspects of Christ's prayer, and we're able to see something of what this unity is, how it looks, what produces it, and what fruits it produces. But subsidiary to that, we also have church history. Disunity in the church is not a new problem. Paul and Barnabas didn't always get along. Peter didn't always play well with others. Disunity is not a new problem, and despite its abiding presence, there have In history, there have been fellowships of believers and churches that have been marked by a remarkable unity. And in all cases, it had similar characteristics and it had a profound power that accompanied it. Though perfect unity has never and will never be achieved in this age, we do know that God has been pleased to do mighty things when he brings his people together. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The unity of the brethren is so close to the heart of God, so close that he prays for it, and so close that by his grace and the ministry of the Spirit, he gives it to his people as a prerequisite to their accomplishing great things for him. Well, our Baptist forefathers provide some helpful guidelines on fostering and maintaining church unity. I want to read to you a paragraph from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 26. Chapter 26 is the longest chapter of the confession. It's the chapter on the church, and it's also the chapter that makes the Baptist Confession the Baptist Confession. Because in this confession, they depart from much of what they glean from Westminster, And chapter 26, paragraph 14, they articulate this truth. They say this, as each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ. Isn't that what Jesus is doing in John 17? He's praying for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ in all places and upon all occasions to further it. Everyone within the bounds of their places and callings and the exercise of their gifts and graces So the churches, when planted by the providence of God, so as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it. 
I pray that unity is something you enjoy the opportunity to have, not something that you begrudgingly manufacture. I pray that conferences like this are something that you have the advantage of participating in, not something that you force yourself to go to so that you can appear to be spiritual. So as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves. It's not something that we might be able to do. Something we ought to do. We should be striving at this. We should be as intentional about forming our unity as Jesus was in praying for our unity. We're not going to achieve unity by accident. They ought to hold communion among themselves. The particular Baptists, when they used the word communion, they used it in three different ways. Context tells us which way they meant it here. Sometimes they, they meant it in relationship to church membership. They will say, such and such was received into the communion of the church upon baptism. And what they mean is they joined the church. They became members. Sometimes they're referring to the Lord's table. where They're observing communion as a church. But the most broad and generic usage of the term referred to the fellowship that takes place when we come together in unity. That's the sense that they mean it here. We know that because they're not talking about a particular congregation. They're talking about congregations and Christians, plural, not bound by the context of one local assembly. And they they say that these believers, that's what we are here. There's believers from all over the country. There's multiple churches represented. We ought to hold communion together. Here they are. Here's the fruits. What does this unity look like? We hold communion together for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. Peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. These are the fruits of Christian unity as articulated in the confession, but also very apparent and prominent in the prayer of our Lord. Now, this is a prayer, but we shouldn't expect to find these three aspects of unity laid out systematically. Jesus is praying to his Father. He's not writing theology in John 17. These fruits, peace, increase of love, mutual edification, they're all mingled throughout this prayer, and they're interconnected with one another because they're indispensable to unity. You have to have all three of these things to have unity. And you will have all three of these things if you have unity. Let us break down the close of this prayer. And I want to highlight these three marks of unity. And as we consider them one at a time, may the Lord reveal to us the preciousness of these graces. And give us a great longing to possess them. These are not things that we can produce through the works of our flesh. These are gifts given to us by a sovereign God who desires to see his churches united. May we share in that desire. May we share in it. So number one, first fruit of Christian unity is peace. Peace. Unity and hostility cannot coexist. They are incompatible. They are at at odds with one another. So long as there is hostility between you and God, you cannot be united to Christ. 
Peace, then, is no minor theme in the Bible. Christianity is a religion of peace. The Christian ministry is a ministry of peace. God the Father, four times in the New Testament, is referred to as the God of peace. And the prophet Isaiah carefully refers to the Lord Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And the gospel is the good news of the Prince of Peace coming to earth and dying for sinners so that they might have peace with the God of Peace. Christ's work on the cross, which gives us peace with God, is also the very thing that removes hostility and unites us to himself. We see then that unity and peace are intimately related. There's no wonder why Jesus prays for his future disciples as such. Look at verse 21. He prays for them that they all may be one. Now, if Jesus is praying for the unity of the redeemed in all ages, which he is, then as we look around, in our churches, in the broader landscape of evangelicalism, as we look around, we may begin to doubt if this prayer will ever be answered. That they all may be as one. Jesus, don't you know But all the fighting and all the contention and every new day there's a new discernment blogger who's ripping up one believer and there's another sermon that's preached against another sermon that was preached about another sermon that was preached. All of us this morning, to make this personal, could share of experiences of contention and strife and discord among the brethren. For some of you, this might be your first Sunday back in church for the very reason of disunity. You might be on the verge of just giving up church altogether. So what do you mean, Jesus, that they all may be as one? Will this prayer for unity ever receive an answer? If so, when? When will we see the answer to this prayer? Well, the Bible answers the first question with a resounding yes. This prayer will be answered. It will be answered in two waves, in two forms. The ultimate answer to this prayer will come in the eschatological assembly as there will only be one flock under one shepherd with perfect unity. There won't be a plurality of churches in heaven. Some Baptists, some Presbyterians, some Methodists. Though I'm quite convinced that there are some folks that wish it were so. There will be one great assembly in which there will be no division and no disunity. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But preacher, how does that help me right now? I'm not there yet. So how does this help me right now? I'm glad you asked. Why do I bring this out? Why do I talk about this heavenly assembly? Because at the heart of Baptist ecclesiology is the desire to build our local churches on earth after the heavenly pattern. The Baptist doctrine of the church is really simple. We look at this heavenly church, we look at its characteristics, and then we try to make our local churches on earth look like that. 
That's why we guard a regenerate church membership. Because every member of that eschatological assembly is regenerate. We aim to build churches where that which is de jure, that is, what is true of the heavenly assembly, is de facto, that is, what is present here and now. For the same reason, we must endeavor to achieve and maintain unity in and amongst our churches on earth. We must wage war on divisiveness and strife and vainglory because the more unity we possess, the more heavenly we become. The more unity we possess, the more heavenly we become. Also in verse 21, we see the type of peace our Lord wants us to possess. That they all may be as one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. This unity is not institutional, nor is this unity denominational. This unity is not produced by external conformity. That's not true unity. External conformity is not unity. True unity flows from the heart. It's not just the number of theological boxes we check or the way we dress or our political leanings or our culture. Kyle White, who taught me that uniformity is not unity. There are churches with great uniformity and they have long lists of rules that they expect all their members to abide by and all the men dress the same way and all the women dress the same way. They all listen to the same type of music and they all vote the same way and believe the same way and have the same English translation and have the same eschatology. And and there's no unity. There's no unity. I can prove it to you because they split and then they split again and then they split again and they split again because there's no unity. There's only uniformity. If that's the kind of peace we have, then we have a very shallow, superficial, unstable peace. Some of you are smiling because you've been in churches like that. The sort of peace that Jesus prays for is so much deeper, so much deeper. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. The, the unity that Jesus prays for, if I can be a little pithy this morning, the unity that Jesus prays for is not unity in the length of a hymn line. It's unity in the nature of the triune Godhead. peace that Christ prays for is for us to be modeled by the harmonious relations of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, two persons, yet one in essence, one in will, co-equal in every quality and attribute. That's how united Jesus wants us to be. That's our model for unity. Our unity is to be an overflow of the unity that we have in Christ. Jesus prays as much in verse 23 when he'll say, I and them and you and me. I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. 
As believers, we have union with a united God, and that union between us and God transcends into our unity with one another. The hymn writer summed this truth up well in the blessed hymn, The Church is One Foundation. Singing of the church, yet she on earth hath union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion. There's something mystic about Christian unity. Mystic sweet communion. It's sweet with those whose rest is one. Our unity is not secured by the things we contribute, but by virtue of what God has already done in uniting us to himself. Heavenly unity is both our source and our example. John Gill said, This unity is in nature and in will and in affection and in understanding. And this unity is an abiding together, a cleaving together, a standing fast in one spirit, having the same designs and the same interests of the Redeemer in view and in heart. So the unity of God's people that is analogous to union in Christ and analogous to the unity in the Godhead is the grounds of the Christian community. Beloved, we must realize that we have so much more in common in Christ than we have uncommon in the world. And if there are two people sitting here this morning, which I know they're not, because we live in America, but if there are two people sitting here this morning and you have absolutely nothing in common, but you're both in Christ, you have more commonality than all of the dissimilarities that the world could ever put within you. You are more united this morning with a believer in Telugu, Hyderabad, who's baptized into the triune name than you are with an unbeliever in St. Francis, Kansas. This is the unity that Christ prays for. And it is by this unity that the world will recognize the power of Christ. He says in verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. Why does Jesus pray for our unity? So that the world will believe in his power to unify his people. The power of Christ is manifested when he unites us together in one faith and one practice despite our abundance of differences in personality and culture and background and every other thing. There's something so precious about the peace of Christian unity that even the world sees it. What a shameful testimony it is before an unbelieving world when all they see of us are our fights and our disputes with one another when we air out our dirty laundry for the world to behold, we do not bring glory to God. In verse 21, our effectiveness of reaching the lost is linked to our peace. Powerful. It was demonstrated in that illustration last night about the revival there that took place and that which was hindering that revival was a disunity between two pastors in the, in the city. And I, I heard that illustration and I thought that's exactly what Jesus was getting at in verse 21. Our 
Effectiveness to reach the lost is linked to our peace. If we're united, the world will believe that the Father sent the Son. If we're not, they won't. That's that's what he's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. So may we, as the Bible says, seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. And may we repent. May I repent of this carnal, divisive attitude that thrives on confrontation, which is so prevalent in the church today. Some pastors, if they didn't have some fight to be in and some issue to confront, they wouldn't have a ministry. May we never be that way. May our churches never be that way. May our churches not be known by what we stand against, but by the Christ we proclaim. Peace. Secondly, second fruit of Christian unity, an increase of love. An increase of love. The second and perhaps most undervalued fruit of unity is an increase of love. Not just love, but an increase of it. If you're united, your love will be growing and growing and will increase day by day. And the longer you're around one another, the more you'll love one another. We live in a day when the seeker-sensitive contemporary church movement has stolen from us the sweetness of love. We're afraid to speak too much about it. We don't want to talk about love too much. If we talk about love too much, people might think that we're weak or we're compromisers. No, so we have to talk about fighting and warfare. We have to name our conferences, the Royal Rumbal Fight, 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 War, War, War Conference, because we're manly. So sick of that. Sick of that because if love is what it means to be a liberal compromiser, then I don't know anyone more liberal than our Lord. Love is foundational to the gospel and essential to our unity. It was love that compelled him to come to earth and die in the place of sinners. And we must not allow it to be stolen from those who would abuse it. In this prayer, Jesus couches his petition for unity. He couches his petition for unity with three requests for divine love to be a reality amongst his people. Notice, it's not laid out systematically. With every petition, Jesus couches it with a request for divine love to be a greater reality amongst us. He makes three statements at the end of verses 23, 24, and 26. Look at your Bibles. Look at the end of verse 23. He says, and have loved them as you have loved me. In verse 24, he says, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then at the end of verse 26, he says, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Our unity testifies to three things. Number one, the Father loves us even as he loves Christ. The Father loves us even as he loves Christ. Number two, this love is an eternal, transcendent love that originated before the foundations of the world. It's an unconditional love 
It's not merited or earned on our part. Number three, we have this immense divine love in us because Christ is in us. The Bible declares a very simple truth in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. God is love. This can only be true because God is a united trinity. Love requires a recipient. Something cannot be love if it has nothing to love. Well, who did God love before the foundation of the world? Before any human or any other creature ever came into existence, who did God love? Himself. He loved himself. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The Father and the Son loved the Spirit. The Spirit loved the Father and the Son. In these eternal Trinitarian relations, we have the most sublime picture of love in unity. I hate to break it to you, but God didn't create you because he was lonely. He created you, Revelation 4.11, according to his pleasure. That's far better than God creating you because he was just so lonely and because he needed you to fulfill him. He created you because of his pleasure. What does that mean? What do you mean he created me because of his pleasure? Because... Though he had perfect love within himself, it pleased him to create you so that that love could overflow and the Trinitarian love that the Father, Son, and Spirit knew could be bestowed upon you. It pleased God to do that. It pleased him to do that. When we exhibit Christian unity, we manifest... That we are recipients of the love of God inasmuch as Jesus himself received the love of his Father. That's what he's praying in verse 23. Father, make them perfect in one that the world may know that you love them even as you loved me. The love of God not only comes to us in like manner as it came to Christ, it comes to us in Christ himself because we are positionally united to him. How do you receive the love of God? You receive the love of God because Christ receives the love of God and Christ, believer, is in you. The fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily has indwelt you. So the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world and the Father loves you even as he loves the Son. How could God love us, mortal men and women, before the foundation of the world, in Christ, before we existed? Ephesians 1.4. Before the foundations of the world. Let me turn there. Ephesians, Ephesians 1, turn there with me. There's a pesky comma here that just irritates me. And I can say that because God did not write this book with commas. Maybe your translation doesn't have it. Ephesians 1. And look at verse 4. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, comma. That comma, the reason why it's so pesky is because it's two words too late. Here's the predestinating love of God. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, comma, in love having predestinated us. It was the love of God that chose you before the foundation of the world and put you in his son before you had ever done good or bad, before you could ever earn or damn yourself. God in heaven loved you and he put you in Christ. then why do we preach predestination as if it's cold and callous and heartless? As if we're the frozen chosen. When the very thing that predestinated you in Christ was the divine, trinitarian love of God. In love having predestinated us. The Father loves Christ before the foundations of the world. We are in Christ. Therefore, this eternal love transcended to us before we were ever born. Perhaps there's someone here this morning that struggles to feel loved. You feel like you're unlovable. You feel like no one loves you. I share in that struggle. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a very broken home. My parents were separated. And it seems like at times they loved bars more than they loved me. And I didn't understand that. I didn't know why they didn't love me. And I thought that maybe I'm just unlovable. Let me say to you that there is a God in heaven who loved his people before they were ever born, not because of anything they could provide for him or do for him or anything they had to offer him. His love for us is not contingent upon our goodness, but he loves us. Because it pleases him to love us. And this love that the Father gives to us in Christ spills over from the Trinity into our hearts and overflows out of our hearts to one another and forms Christian unity. And because that is so, not only do you have a God in heaven that loves you, but you have believers, you have brothers and sisters in this church that love you. You struggle to feel loved by your natural family. You have a family of faith that loves you in Christ. And no one will ever love you the way your heavenly father will love you through Christ and through his people. I said all that to answer the question, how does God love us in the same way that he loves his son? 
when we testify that we have received the love of God, when we possess a unity that causes us to love one another, even as God has loved. Note how Jesus framed this earlier in the upper room discourse. Turn back to John. Hold your finger in 17 and then go all the way back to 13. John 13 in verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Well, what was so new about this commandment? Did not the law say all the way back in Leviticus 19 that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves? Did not Deuteronomy command us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, mind, body, passions? What is so new about this commandment? What's new is that with the advent of Christ, we now have the most supreme demonstration of love that the world has ever seen. The world has never seen love like this before. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Christ love us? By leaving the splendors of heaven, knowing what his destiny was. By living for 33 and a half years on this earth, veiling himself in human flesh, yet without sin, being despised and mocked and dejected by the very ones he came to save. By dying a sacrificial, vicarious, sin-bearing, substitutionary death where on the cross his righteousness he gave to those who had no righteousness. And he who knew sin took upon our sin and suffered under the wrath of God. That's how he loved us. Greater love knows no man than to lay down his life for his friends. That is how he loved us. He loved us when he was on the cross. He loved us when he was in a borrowed tomb. And he loved us on Sunday morning when he rose from the grave. And he loves us now at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And when we love one another with a sacrificial, other-seeking love, we testify to the world that we belong to him. When we love one another because of what we get at in return, we're no better than the world. We just love like the world loves. But when we love because it pleases us to love one another, and to put one another before ourselves and to sacrifice ourselves and to pour out ourselves for one another, we testify we belong to him. And he says in verse 35 of John 13, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your pristine, reformed theology. No, he says, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Our desire, I know this is the desire for your church, it's the desire for my church, is that the world would look at us 
And the world would say, I don't understand why those people do what they do. I don't know why they dress the way they dress. I don't know what all this church business is. And they sit and they listen to some guy go on and on for an hour. And they have this really big, thick book. It all just makes no sense to me. But one thing I know, those people love one another. Oh, that the world would say that about our churches. When we project to the world all of our contention, their ears are closed by what their eyes see. But when we manifest the love of God, ears begin to open because they see Christ. They see Christ. It's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. It's the love of God that grants repentance and faith. May God give us an increase of love. Thirdly, there's a mutual edification. Look at John 17. The third and final fruit of our unity is a mutual edification. Unity produces a genuine love for one another in Christ, and it also produces a communal dynamic. We are a community in which we learn and we grow and we develop in Christ as we minister to one another. We need one another. The Bible likens the church to a body. Unity is not just an added blessing that would really be nice to have. Unity is essential for our existence as churches. Jesus prays for his disciples that the glory which the Father gave to him, he has given us, and that that glory make us one, just as he and the Father are one. A mutual edification. The, the term edification carries with it the idea of building up one another. That's what Jude is conveying in verse 20 of his epistle when he says that we keep ourselves in the love of God as we build ourselves up on our most holy faith. We are to be building each other up in the faith, that is, in the reality of Christ's person and work. We are to be speaking Christ to one another, encouraging one another in Christ. We edify one another as we point one another to the Lord. You know that brother or sister in your life, hopefully in your church, in your family, who whenever you're around them, they just make you want to be more like Jesus because you see Jesus in them and the Jesus in you sees the Jesus in them and you say, I want more of that. That's the idea of Christ's prayer in this passage when he talks about the glory that was given from the Father to him and now to us. If I love Christ and I see Christ in you, then I'll be united to you because I see Jesus and I want more of him. If your church is striving to be a place where Christ is proclaimed and exalted and glorified and worshipped, guess what kind of people you're going to attract? Guess what kind of churches you're going to have the greatest unity with? We're so concerned as pastors that, you know, our churches, we get the right kind of people in, and we want the right kind of people. We want people that understand and love the Lord the way we do. How do we ensure that? We preach Him. And when we lift Him up, He'll draw His people to Himself. 
Churches who desire to be mutually edifying in the most holy faith will foster this unity amongst the brethren. Let me show you where Jesus prays for this. John 17 shows you verse 22. Look at verse 24. He prays in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. Romans 8.17 tells us that we are joint heirs with Christ. Meaning that we are joint recipients of all that the Father has given to him. The glory that the Father gives to the Son, he gives to us in the Son. How's that for edification? How's that for being built up? What more do you need? You have all of the blessings in Christ. This glory is not an external showiness. This glory is not the power to work miracles. This glory is not the ability to perform signs and wonders. This glory is the inward reality of Christ. All that he is and all that he has, he gives to you. This glory is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The chief grounds for our unity, brothers and sisters, is that we are a people marked in every way by the Son of God. Notice that Jesus prays, not only for our future glory, but for our present glory. I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am. Jesus prays for the day when all of his redeemed will be assembled together. That day when there will be perfect unity between us and between our God. And what will we do on that day? We will. With clearer eyes, with fervent affection, with deeper passion, with greater understanding, behold his glory throughout all of eternity. Father, I've already given them my glory. They have it in part. But I want them to be where I am so they can have more of it. Moses, you won't have to hide in the cleft of the rock anymore. You won't have to just see my hinder parts as I pass by. Your face won't just glow for 40 days. You will be enlivened with my glory forever. Do you see what Christ is saying here? Whether in life or in death or in the life to come, our unity is centered around the glory of May the glory of Christ so fill this place that it makes all of our petty divisions seem just what it is. Petty division. May it crumble and fall and break in a million pieces at the preeminence of his glory as it manifests amongst us. The glory of Christ is what distinguishes us from those who don't know God. Verse 25 and 26. O righteous Father, the world has not known you. Those who don't know God don't see him as glorious. That's their problem. It's not that they don't have a cognitive recognition of the existence of God. The heavens declare that there is a God. It's that they don't see him as glorious.
The world has not known you. The world has not seen you as glorious, Father. But these have known you. These have seen you as glorious. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who sees God as glorious. How did we come to see God as glorious? Because Jesus says, I have declared unto them your name, and I will declare unto them your name. I have declared it. I will declare it. We are united here this morning under one Lord, one glory, and one name. And our unity produces a mutual edification as we point each other to this glorious Jesus Christ. Peace, increase of love, mutual edification, building one another up in the glory of God. These are the fruits of Christian unity. Now let me... Conclude with an exhortation for you to purposefully and passionately seek the unity that Christ prays for here in this text. This is an indicative meaning that Jesus is praying for something and he's describing fruits that will be a reality when we have unity, but it's an indicative that we should pursue. It's fruits that we should pursue. You don't take these things for granted. You pursue them, and you foster them, and you develop them. And if we're honest with ourselves, then we must admit that we, as Baptists, need such an exhortation. As the world is dying and going to hell, as wickedness abounds more and more, as the world cares less and less for the cause of Jesus Christ, we often fail to preach the gospel to lost souls because we're too busy biting and devouring one another. And you say, well, brother, we must contend for the truth. Absolutely, we must contend for the truth. We can't have unity without it. And yes, sometimes the truth divides. And yes, sometimes unity is hindered because there isn't enough truth to bind the parties together. But for Christ's sake, may we not wear our disunity as some kind of badge of honor. There are those who pride themselves and boast and who they don't have fellowship with as if it somehow makes them more spiritual. Well, I don't go to that conference, because at that conference... Like the little disciples that ran chirping to Jesus. What did you, Baptists love that verse that says, he that is not for me is against me, but they conveniently forget that verse that says, if they're not against us, they're for us. When we're unable to have fellowship with other believers due to doctrinal or practical differences, it should grieve us, not give us a, an air of superiority. It should remind us that we live in a fallen world, and we ought to be careful about how we speak about them, because if they're believers, though we might not be able to have much unity and fellowship with them here on earth, we're going to be spending eternity with them. And I don't want the first thing I do when I get to heaven to be to have to apologize to all the people I slandered on earth. One day we will have perfect unity. As we cling steadfastly to the truth, may we also strive to form bonds of unity with other believers in other churches, in other denominations, in other countries, in other contexts that are different than ours. May we love them. May our love increase. 
May we seek to have peace. May we mutually edify. May we be a people of peace, free from contention and strife. May we be a people in which love is increased, so much so that the world knows that we are his disciples. May we be a people of mutual edification as we learn from one another to point one another to Christ. And may God make this prayer our heart's desire, and may he, by the ministry of the Spirit and the exaltation of Christ, graciously grant us these fruits of Christian unity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us, Lord. We are so grateful uh, for the ability to come together, to gather together in one name, under the preaching of one gospel, under one glory. Lord, if, if this prayer is going to be answered, I recognize that you're going to have to kill my pride. And you're going to have to humble me. And Lord, that's going to be very painful. But I pray that you do it. And I pray that you do this work in all of us, that we might be an answer to the prayer that Jesus has prayed for us. Oh God, glorify yourself in our unity. Glorify yourself in our unity. Give us true unity. Give us these fruits of unity. Bless the preaching of your word. Bless the progress of your gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys would stand with me. smile.